Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. I want to especially thank Reach Church DeSoto. Uh, I know they had their fall festival yesterday, had to take it indoors, uh, but that didn't stop them. And uh, they had a lot of folks um, come through the building and and um, it's just so good to see what God is doing through Reach Church and in that community. And um, Reach, we're grateful for you. And Pastor Brian uh, McDaniel and Pastor Ryan Schatzer doing a great job out there. And um, also welcome uh, Reach Church Paola. And uh, last week at our campuses, got to hear live preaching in all of our services. And so um, Pastor uh, Darren Ingle, uh, uh, yeah, Ingles, we uh, preached out there this past weekend and did a great job, I know. And um, Oglesby, I'm sorry, I'm I don't know what happened right there, um, but uh, Darren Oglesby, and he's our campus pastor down there, and did a great job bringing God's word, and Pastor Ryan at, uh, at DeSoto, and um, man, it's just exciting. It, were y'all blessed last week, Pastor Luke, bringing God's word? Did he not do a great job? I hope that's an encouragement to you that God is raising up young men who love the word of God and can preach, and uh, so we got a lot of those guys um, young guns, they're ready to go uh, whenever we need them. And so Luke got up here and brought the word. I'm grateful for him. I also want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. It's good to have all of you with us this morning. Uh, don't forget also tonight we have a business meeting at 5 o'clock. I've heard there's a football game uh, this afternoon um, that might prohibit some. But I just say if you, if you really love Jesus, you'll be here tonight. So, um, you know, if you're spiritual, you really love Jesus, you'll be at church. Um, no, really, if you love Jesus, you'll be here tonight. I'm just kidding. All right, all right. Just kidding. Try to guilt you. Kidding a little bit. But you ought to be here. I'm telling you, it'll be fun. We go to God's word. We, uh, um, we get to see what God has been doing, what God is doing. We want to give you as much information as we can about um, how God is using the resources of this church for his glory. And so you'll be blessed if you can be here. And hopefully Chiefs will be winning so big it won't matter. All right? You can come. I also have promised many that I won't tell a score tonight. So if you're here, there will be no mentioning of a score. So if you come tonight, no mentioning of any score or any update. Because some people are going to record the game and they're going to go home and watch it. So we're going to try to help our brothers and sisters in Christ out. All right? So we're not going to do that. Um, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, as we come to the word of God this morning, we come to what is one of probably uh, one of the, the most critical chapters in all of God's word. Uh, most of you probably wouldn't think of 2 Samuel chapter 7 as being that critical, but it is. Um, all the commentators I was reading and studying, uh, they might not all agree on the exact interpretation of this passage, but they all agree this chapter. has got to be in the top three, top five passages, chapters in, in all of God's word. It's critical. Uh, understanding this chapter is the key to understanding not just the Old Testament, not just what God is doing in First and Second Samuel, but understanding this chapter is key to understanding what God is doing in all of Scripture. Uh, not only all of Scripture, but really the key to understanding what God is doing in history. Because God telegraphs to us what he's doing and he makes a covenant with David whereby he says to David, I'm going to establish a unilateral, literal covenant with you where one of your descendants will rule and reign over Judah and Israel and the world forever. This is one of those chapters, we better know it, because it's critical to our understanding what God is doing. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. God, pray that we'd never get over the fact that you've revealed yourself to us. What a blessing it is to have your revealed word in front of us 
so that we can know who you are and know how we interact with you. But even more than that, we can know what you're going to do. We're your friends through faith in Christ and you desire to tell us what's coming. And through this chapter, we get to know this chapter can become a north star to us as we look to the future. Lord, help us. Illumine our minds to the truths of this passage. Help us to come with humble hearts. Lord, save us from what we think we already know. Help us to put aside any presuppositions about what we think we know. Help us to come with humility to your word so that you might speak to us and you might change us. We don't ask your word to change. We ask your word to change us. So speak to us, move us, change us this morning for the glory of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, look with me, verse one, 2 Samuel chapter seven. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. So here is David. The context of this is that, that David has been established as king. All the nation uh, has united under his uh, leadership. He has defeated the Amalekites. He's uh, defeated the Jebusites. He's pushed them out of the stronghold. He's established Jerusalem as the capital city. He's defeated the Philistines. He's brought the ark of God into the capital city. And God has given him rest. God has given him security. God has given him stability. And so here he is in this place of security and stability and peace. And he's just kind of, of resting there. And he says in verse two that the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So David is looking out upon all that God has done for him and how God has established him. He's looking probably to his palace that has been built. You remember Hiram, king of Tyre, God has raised him up. He's brought cedars and he's built David this beautiful palace, this, this beautiful home. And David is looking at all that, that God has done for him and he desires to do more for God. And really it's a picture of the way that you and I should be. You know, as, as we sit back, we, we ought to often take moments where we sit back and take stock of what God has done for us. And if we know Jesus Christ, doesn't matter what situation we're in today, we can be thankful that today God has saved us through faith in his son Jesus. He's done all the work for us. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our eternity is secure. And often we ought to sit back and ponder that. And whenever we do, whenever we ponder all that God has done for us, there should be something in us that longs to do more for God. In fact, it's why I love the Easter season as we really hone in on the passion of Christ, the death of Christ, his sacrificial atonement, uh, his, his bodily resurrection, his bodily uh, ascension to glory as we contemplate what Christ has done for us. It's always during the Easter season. I don't know about you, but my heart just is inclined to do so much more for the Lord. I think about what he's done for me and I wanna do more for him. That's the heart of David here. He's sitting with Nathan, maybe out on the portico somewhere with a glass of sweet tea. That's just the way I picture it. And David is thinking, God has been so good to me. And he sees his palace, and then he sees the little tent where the ark of God rests. And in his mind, he's thinking, that's not right. It's not right for me, who's done really nothing, to have this nice palace and the ark of God to be placed in a tent. And really the implication here is David is looking at Nathan and he's saying, I want to build a house for God. 
And Nathan responds very quickly. You'll see it there in verse three. Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. Uh, David, there's nothing uh, unbiblical, immoral about the desire that's in David's heart. And so Nathan just kind of shooting from the hip says, go for it. David says, I, 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 that ain't right. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan says, go for it. You're the man. God is with you. And uh, we're going to find out very quickly that Nathan is wrong. Uh, his heart is right, but it's not, not what God wants to do. And God is going to correct him very quickly. And I don't know. I, I don't want to dive too deep here. But it is a good reminder as we're uh, in the kind of the left and right decisions of our life, not those decisions where God is clear and he gives us commands and he tells us what to do but in a lot of the decisions we make in life they're just kind of light and right, left and right decisions they're they're they're, they're not uh, the the decision between good and evil it's just best and better but as we're making those decisions a lot of times we have people in our lives that we go to for counsel and advice and what I was reminded of here Nathan is a great prophet in fact Nathan is going to tell David the truth he's going to confront David a little he's a great prophet but here he's wrong and even the best of men are men at best. Be careful whenever you're seeking to discern what God would have you to do. To Be careful about relying too heavily upon the advice of men and women, no matter how great and godly they might be. Ultimately, we want God to lead us. Ultimately, we want to know the Lord's will. But what a, what a beautiful picture here. David's got a good motivation in his heart. Nathan's just trying to be an encouragement to the king with a, with a good motivation. But then God steps in. And I love this about God. So much of my prayer life every morning is God save me from my own stupidity. That I think I know what I should do and I don't even really know what I should do. And so each day, we just kind of set out as best we can to do what we feel like the Lord is leading us to do. But what we, aren't we always in need to be in prayer to say, God, correct us if we're getting out of step. And make us teachable and make us humble and willing to give up our dreams to do what you'd have us to do. I love this about God. He just sets us out there and he lets us go and do what's in our hearts to do. But God is a God who loves us and he corrects us from time to time. And he does that with David here. So the word of the Lord's gonna come to Nathan. Look down in verse four. But the Lord, that same night, God very quickly, uh, the same night says, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying in verse five, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? So God's gonna make a course correction here. And notice very clear, there's a, there's a change in terminology. Up to this point, it's David the king. The king. Uh, Nathan said to the king, David. Now all of a sudden, as God begins to address, direct, uh, address David, it refers to him as what? My servant. And uh, I contemplate that a lot. I might be a little wrong on this. I don't know. But my inclination is, it's funny, because David is kind of sitting back. And it's, I think it's... Um, Something that we all can be susceptible to. We start walking with God long enough and we're doing all right and we start to think that we, we call the shots. You know, I'm gonna kind of do whatever I want. We start telling, boy, this is a dangerous place to be when you start telling God what you're gonna do and then ask him to bless your plans. And uh, <laughs> I think God, by addressing David as my servant, has reminded David, David, you don't tell me what you're gonna do. I tell you what you're gonna do. I tell you what I'm going to do and invite you to join me. And so God says, this is, you tell my servant, David. You tell him, and, and he, he starts with a rhetorical question. And what I found in God's word, whenever he starts out with a rhetorical question in response, it's usually not a good thing. 
And God says today, are you really? You're the one that's going to build me a house. You, you're going you're gonna to build me a house. And then God goes on to explain through Nathan. Look at what it says in verse 6. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. You know what God says to David? David, there's no precedence for this. I've never dwelt in a house. I've always been in a tent. I've moved about God in a tent just desiring to be with his people, was always kind of agile, abiding in this tent so he could go with them as they move forward. God says to David, I've never dwelt in a tent or in a house. And then he moves on to explain further. Look at what it says in verse seven. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built a house Uh, not built me a house of cedar. God says, number one, there's no precedence for this. Number two, God says, I've never complained about it. (laughs) He says, you can go back and you can ask any of the kings, the prophets, the judges, any of the leaders of the nation. I've never complained saying, why haven't they built me a house? See, there's a good reminder here as we think about the temple and as Solomon will build the temple. Even Solomon, when he builds the temple, makes the declaration at the beginning, God can't be contained in a house. Aren't you grateful that we serve a God who isn't contained in a box or a particular location, but we serve a God who is omnipresent, that there's no place that you can't go where God's not already there? Uh, David in Psalm 139 would say, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. David says, there's nowhere I can go, God ain't there. And there's this reminder, I guess I've never complained about it. God's not contained within a house. Paul at Mars Hill, the speech he'll give there, he'll say, God's not, doesn't dwell in a temple. He's not served by man as if he needs anything. And God says to David, thanks for being concerned about me, but quite frankly, I don't need you. And I don't need a house. And what God is gonna go on to say is, David, you're concerned about me. You wanna build me a house. And you know what God is gonna say? David, you're not gonna build me a house, I'm gonna build you a house. I love this, there's a picture here to me of a biblical principle that we see throughout God's word is that God's chief concern is you. Did you know that? That God's chief concern is you. Even Jesus, who is God made flesh when he comes to this earth, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He was obedient to the point of death. Why? For you. Isn't God a good God? We, we sit back thinking about what, what we can do for God. And God says, look at what I've done for you. I love you, I care for you. That, it's always amazing to me. So many people, in coming to faith in Christ, they're, they're nervous about giving their life to Christ because I think in their minds, they think if I submit my life to Jesus, if I give my life to Jesus, it's gonna be a boring life and man, it's just gonna be tough labor. And uh, man, it, you know, it's just gonna be a tough deal. And the fact of the matter is nothing could be further than, from the truth. You submit your life to Jesus. There's no greater joy you will ever know in your heart, no greater peace you will ever know in your heart. 
And the picture here that you see in David is no matter how much you try to serve God, no matter how much you try to make him great, no matter how much you try to give to him, he will always outgive you. Did you know that today? You cannot outgive God. As much as you would try to do for him, he'll outdo you. And he'll do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ever think, ask, or imagine. Boy, there is nothing greater in all the world than giving your life completely and totally to Jesus. Uh, In fact, Spurgeon, his last sermon, do you know what he says about Jesus? He says, I gave my life to Jesus. He's a great captain. I love what he says. He's a great captain. He says he's always to be found in the fiercest part of the battle. Meaning when you're in a battle, Spurgeon says, boy, when I was in a Spurgeon went through some battles. He says, when I was in a battle, he was always right there with me. He says, when the wind blows cold, you can always find him on the bleakest side of the hill. And he says, he always carries the heaviest end of the cross. His chief concern is you. David, you want to build me a house. You're concerned. Thank you. Thank you kindly. Appreciate it. But watch what I'm going to do for you, David. You can't outgive me. This is the way to grace. You want to, you want to be great? Just spend your life, expend your life glorifying God and serving others. And God says, I'll raise you up. So look at what God says he's going to do for David. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. God is reminding David, everything that you've accomplished in your life is a product of my work. David, I've done it. David didn't set out to be great. David didn't set out to be king. He was just shepherding sheep. He wasn't even thought enough by his father to be brought in the house when Samuel shows up. God raised him up. God picked him out. God took him from being just a lowly shepherd, the runt of the litter, to being ruler of the nation. God did it. God is saying, David, I made you. And I'll make you great. Verse 9, I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. David, I have blessed you. I made you. I'll make you great. Look at verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. God says, I'm gonna make you great. I'm also, I'm also gonna make this nation great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this nation great. And remember, at this point, the context, the immediate context here is Israel, ever since being brought out of the Egyptian bondage, they're brought out of Egyptian bondage and they, they achieve some victories as they go into the land under Joshua. But from then on, you get to the book of Judges, they're, they're beaten like a borrowed mule. You know, they, they, they get beat, God raises up a judge, they get a little victory, then beat. Win a victory, a little bit of victory, they get beat. 300 years and then you get to Eli and his sons and they get beaten by the Philistines. And then they want a king like the Gentiles. Maybe that'll help. God gives them a king like the Gentiles. God gives them Saul. What happened? They get beat. They get beat. They get beat. They're the Cleveland Browns of the Middle East, all right? Yeah, I hope maybe there's some Browns fans watching today. That's how bad it was. Every now and then, but boy, just overall, just defeat, defeat. And you know what God says? Now, now I've anointed my king. I'm gonna raise you up. 
and in a very short order. Do you see the power of God? When he has his anointed king leading in faithfulness to God, God gives them to a place where they defeat the Malachites, they defeat the Philistines, they defeat the Jebusites, they kick everybody out and they dominate. I mean, they, they, were, they were nothing and God is gonna make them great in very short order. Can God do that? Can God raise the people up when he so desires? Well, that's what he does with Israel. Now with their anointed king, I'm gonna make you great. I'm gonna make Israel great. I'm gonna give you peace, a place and peace. And then at the end of verse 11, he says, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Here's where he says it. David, you wanna make a house for me? I'm gonna make a house for you. Now when God uses the word house here, he's not referring to a physical residence. He's talking about a dynasty. David, I'm gonna do something that's greater than your mind can possibly fathom. I'm gonna make a dynasty out of you. I'm I'm gonna establish a monarchy through you. Look at verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. David, there's gonna be a monarchy, a dynasty that's gonna come through you. This was the desire of the nation. Um, when Gideon, in the book of Judges, Judges chapter eight, when Gideon defeats the Midianites, what do the people of Israel do? They say, uh, Gideon, we want you to be king. And then we want your son to be king. And we wanna create a monarch. That was the desire of the nation. And what does Gideon say? No, I'm not, gonna, you know, I'm not gonna rule over you. My sons aren't gonna, God will rule over you. But then Gideon does have 70 sons and looks like he's trying to establish a monarchy and it's a mess. Go read Judges chapter nine of Bimelech. Uh, his name means my daddy is king. That's a bad that's a recipe for disaster, a kid who says, my daddy is king. And, uh, and it goes south really quickly. Uh, you, you remember Saul. What was Saul's desire? He wanted to establish a monarchy. He, he, in fact, he was willing to kill David in order to establish his son Jonathan as king, even though he knew that God was going to set David over the nation. But he rebelled against God, and he wanted to establish his own monarchy. Gideon, no. Saul, no. David, now. Now the desire of the nation is gonna come to fulfillment. I'm gonna establish a monarchy and it's gonna come through my chosen anointed king, King David. You'll have a son. I'll establish his kingdom. Look at what it says in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. So David, you're not gonna build a house for me. And a lot of conjecture as to why David won't build a house and why Solomon will. Can I just tell you, it's God's sovereign prerogative. God says, David, not you, Solomon will. Solomon will build a house for me. And I will establish, in verse 13, the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Okay, now we got something here. (laughs) Now we're, we're talking about something that's bigger than David. We're talking about something that's bigger than Solomon. We're talking about something that's going to be eternal. Okay, we better, we better know what God's talking about here if we're talking about eternity. So what does it go on to say in verse 14? I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I uh, took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So I'm gonna establish Solomon. I'm gonna establish an eternal monarchy through David. And it will be, what you have here is what's known as the Davidic covenant. The word covenant is not here, but covenant language is all through this. And God is establishing what we would call a unilateral covenant. Unilateral meaning 
that this covenant will not be based on the faithfulness of David or Solomon or any other descendant. It is a covenant that will be based upon the faithfulness of God. And that's what he says here. He says, even though Solomon will sometimes disobey me, I'll discipline him. God says, I'll whip him. But God says, I will keep my word. So this nation, as they follow God, the nation of Israel, as they obey God, they'll know his blessings. When the kings disobey God, they'll know his discipline. But what God is saying is even though they'll know my discipline and even though there'll be some days that look really, really bleak, I will not forget my promise to David to establish one of his descendants on the throne of David forever. This is a unilateral covenant. A literal covenant God is making with David here to establish his kingdom forever. And then you'll see, looking on, in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Is God redundant? If an English teacher was great, they would count him off for redundancy. But God wants you to know, I'm doing something here that you need to take note of. I am promising that through David, one of his descendants is going to come and he is going to rule over the house of Judah. He's gonna rule over the nation of Israel and he will rule over the world forever. An eternal divine monarchy through the line of David forever. That's a pretty significant promise. And, and God gives us this promise here and it's a means by which we can know what God is doing in, in the future, what God has done in the past, and what God is doing today. Verse 17, it says, in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. You wanna see this Davidic covenant in light of all of God's word? You want Genesis to Revelation? We're gonna be here till about two, and then we can just stick around and have the business meeting, all right? So, no, bear with me, buckle in, because this is important. This shows the unity of scripture and the divinity, the divine nature of God's word. In Genesis, you remember, the man and the woman there establishes what? King and queen. God has always desired to put a king over the earth. He establishes them as God's vice regent. They are the visible representation of God's rule on earth. And God gives them one command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they sinned. And they lost the kingdom. And their story becomes our story. Their story becomes history. But God, right after their sin, what does he do? In Genesis 3.15, you know what he does? He makes a promise. He's speaking to Satan, the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And he, one man, will crush your head and you will bruise him on the heel. God made a promise right after the fall of man. He says, I'm gonna send somebody, the seed of the woman, one man, a God man who will come, he'll defeat sin, Satan, and death, but he'll be wounded in the transaction. God says, I'm sending somebody. And then, who's that gonna come through? Adam and Eve, they have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Is the line gonna end? Nope. God raises up what? Seth. You know what Seth means? Appointed. Here's the appointed one, Seth. And God begins. Who's this, who's this person who's gonna come? And you follow the line of Seth down until you get to a guy named Noah. You know what Noah's name means? Rest. I think when he was born, they're thinking maybe this is the promised child. Maybe this is the one who's gonna defeat 
sin, Satan, death, and make things right. And, and God brings judgment on the world, but God preserves Noah in the ark of salvation, and God brings him through. And the line is preserved, and Noah's going to have three children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And which one will it be? And God comes to Shem and says, blessed be the Lord. You know what that word, Lord? It's Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And now we know it's going to come through the Shemites, or as we would say, the Semitic people. Who are the most famous of the Semitic people? The Jews. Now we know. We got more of the plan. And God says it's going to come through Shem. And you go on down through Shem, and you got the Tower of Babel. And God disperses them. You got 70 nations pressed out all over the world. And God comes to one. He comes to a man named Abraham who is a descendant of Shem. And he comes to Abraham. And God says, through your seed, through one of your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So now we know it's going to come through Abraham and through the nation of Israel. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And which one will it be? God comes to Judah. And what does he say? The scepter will not depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs comes, and to him will be the obedience of the people. So now we know it's got to come through Abraham. It's got to come through the tribe of Judah. We're looking for a Judean king. You move down from Judah, and Judah has sons and generations, and you get to a man named Jesse. And Jesse's got eight boys. Samuel comes over to anoint the king. He doesn't even bring the youngest, the run of litter. He's out there with the sheep. And Samuel says, you got any more? I got one. He's out there. Bring him in. David comes in and says, God says, this is the one. This is him. And God takes this little shepherd boy and God moves in his life and raises him up to ruler and king over the nation. And God makes a promise to David. David, one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel and the world for all eternity. He will rule this world. In fact, we, next week, got to show back up. David, the news is so great to him, it says he has to go sit down. You ever got news and you're like... You call somebody and say, are you sitting down? God tells David, the most significant person to ever be born is going to come through you. And for all eternity, he's going to sit on the throne of David, your throne. And what happens? David goes on. Solomon is born. David doesn't even know Solomon at this point, but God already told him, I'm going to raise up your descendants. It's going to be Solomon. Solomon gets himself into a little trouble. The nation's going to begin to crack, and then it's going to split into two. You're going to have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom totally corrupt. They're destroyed in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, they do a little bit better. They have some godly kings, but they too are wicked. Things aren't going well. They are taken into Babylonian captivity in 586. They are destroyed, taken into captivity. And it looks like all hope is lost. Does the line go out? No. The end of 2 Kings, 2 Kings 25, God stops you. He goes overboard to tell you about one guy that I know you all know and you've studied closely, Jehoiachin. Why is he significant? Why would God stop us right there and make sure that you know as they go into captivity there's one who's saved? Because he wants you to know, I made a promise. The line won't go out. They go into captivity. Jehoiachin's saved. The line goes on. 
Then they come back out of captivity. The Persians allow them to go back. They're going to reestablish Jerusalem and the temple. And there's a guy. Is the line going to go out? Nope. Because in the book of Ezra, there's a man. A king in the royal line. What's his name? Starts with Zer, ends with Bubble. Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, he's in the Davidic line. God's not going to let go out. Because God made a promise. And he who promises is faithful. When we enter into the intertestamental period, the 400 years between Malachi and the Gospels, and God is whispering to the nation, a king is coming. A king is coming. Does the line go out? Because over in Galilee, there's a man by the name of Joseph. And he's in the Davidic line. In fact, when the angel shows up to Joseph, do you know what the angel says to Joseph? Joseph, son of David. And David has, or Joseph has to have the angel appear to him because he's going to put his wife away secretly because she's pregnant and they're betrothed and he knows the child isn't his. And the angel comes to him and says, no, no, this is, this is the king that I've been telling you about. And he has royal claim to the throne. In fact, when God shows up, the angel of the Lord comes to Mary in Luke chapter one. Uh, the, the angel says to Mary, you're gonna give birth to a son. His name will be Jesus. He'll be son of the most high and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. Why? Because God made a promise. In Matthew chapter one, when you get to the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, verse one, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's going to write to them to show them that Jesus is Messiah. If you're gonna present Jesus as Messiah, you can't start with his words. You can't start with his works. Where do you gotta start? You gotta look at his genealogy. Because if he ain't from David, if he can't trace his lineage back there, he's not the king. So Matthew chapter one, verse one, says I'm gonna tell you about the Messiah the son of David. Son of David. Then it says son of Abraham, which is interesting because Abraham became before David, but the, the gospel writer Matthew wants you to know this is the Davidic king. This is who we've been waiting on. Here he is. And Jesus will live a perfect and sinless life. He will demonstrate that he is the king unlike any other king. He wasn't the king they were expecting. They rejected him. They put him on a cross. In fact, Pilate over him on the cross, what did he put? The title was King of the Jews. Here he is, the Davidic king, dying on a cross. But it was all in accordance with God's perfect plan. All the way back to Genesis 3, what did God say? He's going to defeat sin, Satan, and death, but he would be wounded in the transaction. He'd have to die. And Jesus dies, and he's declared with power. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, where it says he's declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection from the dead, do you know how that's prefaced? Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, I am, I'm a minister of the gospel of the Messiah, the Son of David, who is declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here he is, here is the king. And, and Christ has inaugurated the kingdom. He has come, he has inaugurated the kingdom. And we enjoy the blessings of the kingdom, amen? The spiritual blessings of the kingdom. As we bend our knee to this Jewish Davidic monarchy, 
uh, monarch. We know his forgiveness. We know his salvation. All the nations gathered in the church. We enjoy the spiritual blessings of King Jesus, this Davidic king. But are we the fulfillment of the kingdom? No, we are not. Is Christ reigning in Jerusalem? Last time I checked, no. He made a promise, though, that Jesus would rule over Jerusalem. He said he made a promise that he would rule over the world forever. He made a promise. We're not the kingdom. We are not Israel. This nation, Israel, has a special place in the heart of God. God is not done with Israel, folks. He's not done. Now listen, Israel is not saved because they're Israel. They're not saved because they're Jewish. Salvation has always been based on faith. Abraham believed in God. It was credited to him as righteousness. But that nation has a special heart in the place of God. And God made a promise. And listen to me, when God makes promises, he tends to follow through on them. But the kingdom has been inaugurated. And we bend the knee to King Jesus. And we know the spiritual blessings of this kingdom. But that kingdom one day will be fully realized. Amen. Do you believe that? Uh, Revelation chapter 5. John, he sees the scroll. You remember the scroll? I know y'all remember this when we studied Revelation. He got the scroll. That scroll represents the end of human history. The culmination of history. And John weeps because nobody can open the scroll. And you remember what the elders say to him? Stop you crying. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. The king has come. And the king is coming. And Jesus is the one who will bring history to its end. And you get to Revelation 5. Anybody know? Revelation 6 through 18. You know what you call that? The tribulation. And at the end of that tribulation, will this kingdom be realized? Revelation 19, read it this afternoon. Oh, you bet it will be realized. Christ will return with the church, that's you and I, in a valley called Armageddon. And the kingdoms of the world and the nations of this world will be gathered against the Lord and against his anointed. And Christ will return and he will put them down with the breath of his mouth. Isn't that good? And they will fall. And Christ will establish his kingdom here on this earth. And Jesus will rule from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion, on the throne of David forever. Isn't that good? How do we know it's true? Because he who promised is faithful. When God makes a promise, you can write it down and take it to the bank. It's going to happen. God is faithful. The word of God is incredibly redundant. So redundant. God says things over and over again. The all of scripture is pointing you to Jesus. The Old Testament telegraphs who he'll be. Over and over again, God is telling us, this is him. This is him. This is the king. This is the one you've been waiting for. He's coming. This is him. God does that because when it comes to heaven and hell, folks, you you don't want to miss on this one. God doesn't leave you in the dark with some great mystery as to who the Messiah is. All of God's word points you to one person, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, King Jesus, the Davidic king who will rule over Judah and the world forever.
And listen to me. you got one of two options. God has said, Psalm chapter 2, why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear his fetters apart. Let us cast away his cords from us. This world has never liked God and this world has never liked his people. The world doesn't like Israel, doesn't like the church, and we're seeing it today. Amen? Amen. People are always asking, why is this going on in the Middle East? You want to know why? Because the world hates God's people. That's why. You want the answer? Go to your Bible. It has all the answers. The world doesn't want God. The world doesn't want his anointed. The world hates his people. Do you know what it says the reaction of God is? He who sits in the heavens laughs. God says, that's funny. Yeah, y'all think you're going to oppose me. You know what he says? But as for me, I have installed my king. God says, I've already established a king. And then Jesus says, surely I'll tell the decree of my Lord. For he said to me, you're my son today. I've gotten you, begotten you. Ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. God says, I've already established my king. And at the right moment, at the right time, do you believe this? At the right moment that God has fixed a day. Did Jesus see this as literal, a literal kingdom? Did the, the disciples, you remember in Acts chapter one, they say, is this the time when you're establishing the kingdom? Do you remember what Jesus says? It's not for you to know the time that God has fixed. That sounds pretty literal to me. He's got a fixed time. In fact, when Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples are staring up into heaven, which is what I would have been doing, saying, that's cool. And you remember what the angels say? Why are y'all staring up in heaven? He's coming back in the same way he left. Does that sound pretty literal to you? Sounds pretty literal to me. He's coming back in the same way. Get busy. He is the king. You can do one of two things. Today, he's the king. Whether you want him to be or not, he's king. And you're either going to bend the knee to him today and acknowledge him as king and acknowledge him as Lord and trust in him completely and you can know his salvation, you can know his freedom, you can know his forgiveness. There's no greater joy in all the world than making Jesus your king. Or you can reject him. And uh, you might get away with it for a while. But one day this king is coming back. He comes back the next time. He ain't coming back as a baby in the manger. He's coming back the king of kings. He's coming, extending his scepter, and he will put down all his enemies. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can bow today, you know his salvation, his forgiveness, his freedom, or you can bow then forcibly under his wrath, and you'll know his judgment. Can I implore you today? Submit to him today. Trust in him. He's the king. And God is whispering us today with all the chaos that's going on. You know what he's whispering? The king is coming. The king is coming. The marketplace is empty. No more traffic in the streets. That day's coming, you know it. All the builders' tools on that day will be silent. No more time to harvest wheat. Busy housewives cease their labor in the great courtrooms. 
There's going to be no more debate. Work on earth will all be suspended as the king comes through that eastern gate. Do you all know this song? The king is coming. The king is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding. And now his face I see. The king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God. He's coming for me. Y'all want to sing that? Bill, can you play that song? Do you know that one? I've yet to find a song he doesn't know. Listen to the second verse, happy faces. Think about this, folks. It's coming. I don't know if you've been watching news lately, but I think we're getting close. I don't know how close. I don't pretend to know these things. There's a lot we don't know. I tell you what I do know. The king is coming. I know he's coming for me. That second verse says, happy faces line the hallways. Those whose lives have been redeemed. Broken homes that he has mended. Those from prison he's set free. Little children and the ages, hand in hand, stand all aglow. Who were crippled, broken, and ruined. Now they're clad in garments white as snow. In that last verse, you remember it? I can hear the chariots rumble. I can see the marching throng. The flurry of God's trumpets spell the end of sin and wrong. Regal robes are now unfolding. Heaven's grandstands are all in place. Heaven's choir is now assembled. They begin to sing Amazing Grace. Come on, y'all stay with me. The King is coming. The King is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding. And now His face I see. Oh, the King is coming, the King is coming, praise God, He's coming for me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have loved us and you have made a promise to send a King. And he who promised is faithful. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that's never bent the knee to King Jesus, God, I pray that by your spirit you have revealed the depth of their sin. And I pray that beyond this, you've revealed the beauty of their Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who came and lived and died for them, defeated the grave as an affirmation that he is God. And I pray that they would bend the knee to him as King of kings and Lord of lords, and they would know his salvation, they'd know his freedom, they'd know his forgiveness. Lord, I pray today they'd be reborn by the Spirit and by the Word. Lord, I, I pray for those, this, those of us that do know you. The days sometimes seem bleak. Things get tough. God, I pray that we would never grow discouraged. We would never grow weary. We would never grow tired. We would never worry. We'd never wring our hands. Because we know the King is coming. Praise God, he's coming for me. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.